Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your, your hosts. hosts. Uh, hello, my name is Njabulo and I'm from Rosebank College. I think the online education would work, but I still prefer the face-to-face engagement with a lecturer or a teacher because I feel like you get to know a bit about, you know, you get to know them personally. Also, you get to also get more information from them from personal experiences compared to um, not knowing who the lecturer is. And also, it makes it easier for you to engage with the lecturer if you know them face-to-face. I still like the traditional way of education, going to class and um, hearing what the lecturer has to say. On today's show, we talk to Susan Levine, Associate Professor of Anthropology in the School of African and Gender Studies, Anthropology and Linguistics at the University of Cape Town. Susan is a medical anthropologist whose interests intersect both the arts and medicine. She began her career as an anthropologist in the height of HIV-AIDS denialism in South Africa, where she joined the national struggle for HIV-AIDS awareness. Susan's PhD from Temple University focused on child labor in Cape wine industry in South Africa and has been published as a book entitled Children of a Bitter Harvest. She's also the editor of Medicine and the Politics of Knowledge, a book that focuses on the ways in which medical diagnoses are produced and interpreted by people in Southern Africa, Latin America, China, as well as India. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. On today's episode, we are talking to Associate Professor Dr. Susan Levine about online learning. How are you doing, Susan? I'm really well today. Thank you, Nasipa. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. So you're involved with what is called a MOOC, Massive Open Online Course. What's a MOOC? What's a MOOC? A MOOC is a course that anybody in the world can, with a computer and with internet, those are important factors there, can sign on to and take for free. They are offered on different platforms around the world. And uh, the MOOC that I've been working on is with the FutureLearn platform, which is in the UK. So how did you get involved with MOOCs or this particular MOOC? Well, I had never heard of MOOCs. Uh, I had never taken an online course or been particularly interested in online learning. I really enjoy face-to-face teaching, so it wasn't something I thought would catch my interest. Uh, But I developed an interdisciplinary course called Medicine and the Arts with my colleague from medical school, Steve Reed. And we launched a course which essentially tried to forge ahead with the medical humanities agenda by inviting artists, and social scientists and medical practitioners together to talk around different themes to see what that kind of uh, conversation would look like. So we um, invited a number of uh, lecturers, professors from from the university, University of Cape Town, and um, we really had a, a great time. We had a ball in the classroom, and it was a multi-sided course. It was great fun, really interesting. And um, I received an email from our vice chancellor saying that UCT wanted to get involved in online learning and to produce a MOOC. And because my course showcased so many uh, vibrant themes and wonderful lecturers, 
um, would I consider doing this? And my first reaction was no. <laughs> That's how I got involved. <laughs> your first your first answer was no. And why Absolutely were you not? Why were you resistant at first to to get involved? Yeah, I was resistant because um, of my own, maybe my age, my generation, my lack of familiarity with online learning, um, my attempt to learn the guitar through an online like YouTube thing. I never learned. Um, I just hadn't had much exposure to it, and I suppose my sense of responsibility at UCT was with my students, my our face-to-face students who come to the university, and I, I just our resources were so limited in the Department of, of Anthropology and across the university that I couldn't imagine spending the amount of time required to produce a MOOC or to produce online material for a kind of global uh, student body that I, that I would never meet or encounter face-to-face. So I just felt that it was um, a potentially uh, diversionary um, trajectory in terms of you know, the, the needs of our core teaching at the university. Mm. Sure. I want to I follow up on that question of time because it seems mm. to be a big concern with people's conversations around online learning. But mm. I want to go back to an earlier point that you raised in terms of face-to-face teaching and how mm-hmm. you really enjoy that experience. What have you found is the big difference um, in terms of pedagogy when you're working online um, on this MOOC and this, and for lack of a better word, a campus experience? Mm. And uh, that's what's so fascinating. So in terms of a pedagogical intervention, the MOOC has actually um, challenged my own preconceptions. So what I love about face-to-face teaching are those moments for improvisation, are those moments where you have your, you know, your lecture planned and suddenly a student, uh, you know, asks you a question that completely derails, derails the argument or opens up new ways of thinking about something. And there's that sort of silence and the recognition that a classroom space is dialogic. It's not made up of one person speaking. It's, I think, in its best sense, multi, multi-vocal. And, um, and I've always, just as a lecturer, been really inspired by the classroom as a space for, um, for dialogue and, 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 and building new, new kinds of understandings around core anthropological themes. So my concern about the translating a course like Medicine and the Arts, which is offered at an MA level, with face-to-face students and, and lecturers who are present, I thought that by then offering that in the MOOC version, it would be static, it would, uh, I wouldn't get to know the students. They wouldn't get to know us as, as lecturers. And I must say that um, I've been quite surprised by, by the outcomes and some of the synergies and resonances across the face-to-face versus online learning. Sure. And, I mean, the, the idea of multivocality is one of the big benefits that's uh, touted for online learning that because we're on the internet you're having these robust conversations and everyone is participating have you found that people do participate uh quite a lot during i mean are the videos live how does it how does it work (laughs) i'm trying i'm trying to get a sense i'm still trying to figure that out (laughs) so what happens is this is really exciting so what we've opted for uh, my colleague steve and i we we eventually obviously said yes to the vice chancellor and yes to um, the organization uh, SILT, uh, which is the Center for Innovation and Learning and Technology at UCT, which drove the MOOC, and they have been exemplary. I really um, 
is just so skilled at, at enabling a site that does allow all the people who are registered for the MOOC to take part in the course in an active way. So like Facebook or um, Instagram or other sort of um, online communication platforms, um, students can watch a short uh, a video segment from the course. So if a lecturer may be speaking about um, artistic representations of the corpse, for instance. Um, a 15-minute um, seminar will take place, and then there'll be spaces in the chat room to respond to that lecturer and also to create subgroups and uh, shared interest communities on the site in this um, open platform. And so what Steve and I sort of figured out is that there's this whole realm called flipped classrooms, which, again, is for me, I had never heard of this. I didn't know what it was. And the flipped classroom model enables our face-to-face -face students in medicine and the arts to interface with and, in some instances, mentor the online students. Ah. So we might have 7,000 students online, or we might have as many as 15,000 students online. Um, we've had that many in the past. And then our students engage um, across and, you know, from people in Trinidad and, and Mali and other parts of, of Africa and Australia, et cetera. And these rich dialogues happen between the online community and our students, which is extremely exciting. Sure, that's really... And you call this a flipped, a flipped classroom? A flipped classroom. Yep, sure. it's a flipped classroom. So when the MOOC rolls out, when the MOOC goes live, our students are also taking the course live, which then means that... And so here's one of the drawbacks of the MOOC as opposed to the face-to-face -face classroom. Because of copyright laws around literature and, um, for example, artists fear that when they put their art online somehow, I don't know, I don't know, they'll lose millions. I don't quite get it, but there's a real reticence from scholars and, and artists to actually make the content free and available for these online MOOCs. Mm. So the curriculum for our MA course, which is offered at UCT, um, the readings and, and requirements are, are very much different from the kinds of materials that we can post as open source on the MOOC site. So the strength of having um, a kind of dialogic space between our students and the online learners is a sharing of materials across that divide. And um, where online learners have questions they can, about what we're doing here in Cape Town, um, they can ask the students and the students respond. So it, it creates an extraordinary then we can build our repertoire of literatures and music and poems and all kinds of things around the medical humanities because these thousands of students come with their own resources mm. and they will post them into these chat rooms. So we're building an archive, um, which is very exciting, and finding out how the South African story interweaves with other kinds of stories around medical humanities. Sure. That's, that's, I think that's really interesting, especially since around the world people are grappling with this question of what do we do with... Uh, this movement towards open access and democratization of information and learning whilst also having kind of an old understanding of copyright and ownership um, and how you how you deal with that challenge in the classroom is really quite interesting and that the students themselves are the ones who are kind of driving this exchange and uh, sharing of information. I really like that idea. Well, thanks. It's been a kind of an organic uh, process and at first we thought that the lack of um, 
generosity of spirit of some some kinds of publishing houses uh, would would be a downfall. But with the flip classroom, we've been able to remedy it to some extent. Sure, yeah, it's been a very exciting exciting project. I want to I want to talk more about this um, this question of access because mm. in South Africa right now we are experiencing um, student led interventions into access to. Um, higher education with the call for free and decolonized education. Mm. Um, and so the issue of access is on the forefront of everyone's minds. And mm. a lot of people have been saying things like online learning, online learning will be key in this process. And I was wondering what your experiences have been in two areas of of, of, of ex, um, expanding access. Firstly, financially. Um, so you need to have the internet to be able to get on the course, even though it's free. Do you find right. that people struggle with that, or how do people negotiate or access this course, even though it's free, but you know, data must fall? Well, that's that's the that's the crux of the inequalities that seeps through, right? So, mm. in terms of the ideal of the MOOC to make this massively open online course, right? So these aren't just online courses; they're mass massively open. They're imagined as somehow having this extraordinary reach, uh, particularly to redress. Uh, economic imbalances that that prohibit or you know keep some people um, create worlds of exclusion from from higher education. And what we have found, I must be honest, uh, in looking at the demographics of of who takes this MOOC, uh, for the most part, they are you know either students at other universities around the world who already have uh, access to universities, to computers, to libraries that have data. Um, and um, other professionals or retired retired professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't seen a kind of shift in terms of of, of class. Uh, uh, you know, we haven't seen the kinds of massive shifts that I think some of the early MOOCers would have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Those of us producing MOOCs could have. Um, so in terms of thinking about its future as as a way to really um, reach out. Um, I think a huge amount of work needs to be done, but I also think that you know systems of governance and capital and exploitation and labor and all of them you know the, the, the most pressing questions of our global world order need to be tackled before any kind of education can be fully democratized and expansive. So sure. the idea of a free and equal education is critical, and maybe there's something in in the, in the massively open online learning that's free that can begin to unstitch the relation, sticky relationships between corporate capital and learning. No, sure. And it, it, I'm also curious about how you negotiate language um, mm. on, on, on this um, online learning courses. Um, I would imagine that there is a potential for African languages to start being used more in the classroom, if, especially in the flipped classroom scenario. Um, have mm. you found that takes place at all? We have, because it's an international MOOC, we have, you know, we have some students who speak Portuguese, we have students who are speaking Shona and Zulu, and what's actually quite beautiful about this particular platform, um, and I can't speak for all MOOCs, um, most of the MOOCs clearly coming out of uh, the South African from the north are primarily uh, in English, um, but we do have students uh, who share different interpretations of, of questions around disease, diagnosis and treatment um, in, in mother tongue. 
and so there's a space in the online world I think to really to to push to push a kind of uh, multilingual uh, education. I think if this is happening in our classrooms. Mm. Uh, we're having to find new ways of moderating, and because our students who are you know, multiple language speakers are mentoring online, there's also a greater flexibility. Um, in terms of relying on on one lecturer who may be stuck in one of eight languages or one of one language. Mm. So, um, again, I hope that the MOOC can lend itself to greater flexibility, but again, always in the context of a flipped classroom so that our pedagogical interventions in the classroom match and mirror what's happening online. So it's not as if one's moving forward and the other one's staying still. No, sure. So I do see that there needs to be some kind of uh, core pedagogical relationship in what you're talking about there. Mm. And I mean, I also think for me, thinking about um, the question of access brings to mind some of the other questions in the offline classroom uh, space Mm. that are challenges. And one of those challenges is how we cater for students with different learning abilities or different physical disabilities. Do you find that the online learning platform allows for students with different learning abilities because it's self-directed learning to Mm. be able to participate more? Mm, I do. I think there's a difference between maybe different learning abilities and familiarity with a discipline. And we have both happening in the online world. You have, um, uh, you know, students who've never taken an anthropology course who are healers or they are um, poets. And, and so what we've had to do with, with our online course is to make sure that whatever readings we post and whatever lectures we put are, are uh, kind of try to find a, a body of literature that's accessible mm. across people's different interests and also accessible in terms of not using language that is so discipline-bound that people won't understand it. And in terms of different learning abilities, absolutely, we have... We have students with a range of different um, uh, kinds of in different immersions in school and high school and, and university, and and we've we've thought very carefully about the curriculum and how to um, how to set I don't know try to create a kind of a space online which which might be quite different from from a face to face course. Sure. Um, so we'd hope in both space to accommodate all different kinds of learners and learning abilities. Speaking as if someone with, suffers with dyslexia, um, just the site itself requires an ability to navigate different assignments and, and different windows and different audios. It's, so trying to create a platform that's not too challenging has, has been, been part of the um, artistry of the whole thing. Sure, it sounds like a massive undertaking. And I, I guess with medicine and the arts, the course in itself is transdisciplinary in a lot of ways. You are yeah. opening up to artists, to poets, to medical, biomedical people, yeah. to people in the humanities. And I wonder if this is something that encourages, a at least online learning, encourages this um, blurring of disciplinary lines and, and what that means for how we think about, you know, degrees at universities that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to graduate with a degree in anthropology or in social science and these kinds of um, transdisciplinary configurations. How do, wh- what do you think is their potentiality for shaping mm-hmm. the ways in which we think about degrees and 
what one goes to university to do, mm. really. Mm. There's an interesting anecdote. We had some of our students in medicine and the arts uh, talk about their experience of being in a lecture theatre with, with lecturers and, and, um, and artists and going to performances and traipsing around Cape Town to different venues and, and then having to present themselves around different readings. And what's fascinating is that so many of the students gave feedback that said the MOOC was an amazing place to try out their ideas, um, that they would rehearse their, their stories and their interpretations of, of what they've been reading and engaging with um, with other people on the site before coming to the seminar to class. Oh. And they felt that this online space gave them a much broader sense of um, a place to be vulnerable, a place to try out ideas, a place to be maybe more anonymous and through the anonymity to reveal more. Mm. So the ironic thing about the, the MOOC and I suppose my own journey with online learning is that when I first began, I was a bit suspicious and, and thought maybe there would be uh, fewer spaces to learn about people and individuals online. Mm. But in fact, what we found both from our face-to-face students who've given feedback and from the online learners is that it's been uh, this kind of very slippery sort of anonymous, non-anonymous uh, place to be able to really hash out ideas in a non-judgmental way, in the same way that a classroom feels, it, it instills some form of insecurity in mm. some of our students. And it's almost like this online space is just unplugged and unleashed this uh, space of imagination and trust. And um, in 2017, I'm not sure, you know, to what extent um, SMSing and Facebook and other forms of um, uh, online communication have opened up that space, uh, created different modalities of self-expression, but it's been quite potent in this course. And um, uh, certainly from an interdisciplinary framework, uh, the online space has just, it's broken down so many silos and the way knowledge is produced or the ways in which reflexivity and bringing one's stories into the equation of the readings. It's, it's, it's been a heart-opening experience actually in many ways sure i mean it it sounds i mean when we speak of the the revolutionary potential of the internet these are the kinds mm. of stories you want to hear that here's this tool that we can use to connect with people in very vastly different ways than we might um offline mm. but with the advent of Trump, <laughs> who <laughs> has to come into every conversation had in 2017, with yeah. the advent of Trump and people paying more attention to not just fake news, but trolling on the Internet. Do you find that those tensions arise also in the learning environment? I mean, we know in the classroom that we've got gender, racial, class disparities mm-hmm. and whose voice is heard, who, who's online more often, I guess. I, I'm mm. trying to and I, I want to understand does that do those tensions ever come up in the online environment? Do you get a troll in the classroom, and how do you how do you deal with those particular kind of challenges of um, of mediating the very different kind of positionalities that people come into the classroom mm. with, and some of them may not be in the spirit of democratic learning and sharing. Mm. Um, that is a great question. I don't think it's one I can easily answer, but it's certainly one that I hope that um, our students are grappling with and that we as lecturers are grappling with. It's a tough one. Um, in terms of this, 
this this space and and different positions, and we haven't actually in this particular course encountered um, the kinds of um, brutal forms of disagreement that 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 we that we may see in other kinds of, of platforms. Mm. Um, though there has been disagreement, which in which sometimes we've been called in to mediate. So, for instance, in, a, in an interdisciplinary space that focuses on the intersections of arts and medicine, um, you have students who, for instance, are women living with, with breast cancer who've opted not to um, go on to chemotherapy, have opted not to have a mastectomy, have opted to live life with cancer and to make the cancer part of their life and um, dying experience. And they've found one another on the site um, and created, this is just one example of many subgroups that form in this online um, world. And and they could be from, they usually are from very different parts of the world. Mm. And you then will have um, oncologists on the site who will, you know, really find this hugely problematic and then suddenly get incredibly concerned about the kinds of um, health messages, you know, as if this was a public health <laughs> intervention, which it's not, um, will suddenly find uh, a kind of angle and agitation around these different um, understandings of disease and how to live with disease or treat disease. So you get quite robust disagreements in, in that respect. Um, one also sees disagreements because if you look at the demographics, more than 50% of the students are from northern countries where access to health care is far more equitable than in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of this continent in Latin America where students also come from. And so what seems just commonplace, you know, you can go to the doctor and get antibiotics or um, people talking about different healthcare regimes on the site, um, you will have others, other voices saying that you're not thinking about you know, structural inequalities, you're not thinking about histories of, of colonialism and, and racism and regimes of power that, in which medical care is bound up with. Mm. And so you do get some of that, but I would say not as much as we'd hoped. Mm. Um, not as much as we'd hoped for, uh, which may say something, which may answer an earlier question about who's actually able to access and who's actually participating mm. in these online in these uh, online spaces currently. Sure, that's really really fascinating, um, and I th- and I think it's bec- the nature of your course, uh, which might be quite different, I guess, with somebody doing a straight up pure mathematics online course or mm. a purely medical. Uh, online course but that yeah. is that is really interesting because for for me as well thinking about the ways in which I interact online and being conscious of opening myself up to people who might have different perspectives or different understandings it's really something that I think all of us need to be challenged in but it's mm. often so difficult because of the space can become so tense and we then create these echo chambers um, instead of actually pushing our boundaries Mm-hmm. Also, re- recognizing that the extreme, extreme time it takes and care it takes to actually have rigorous dialogue, um, which can be quite um, emotionally taxing and uh, for other people just doesn't seem quite worth it. But I think it is something that is important for us to consider as we 
think about online learning as an alternative um, platform or an additional platform to classroom learning. Mm. I want to also... Think, yeah? yeah. No, Sorry, no. No, 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 no carry on. <laughs> Fine, keep going. Sorry. Well, I was going to I was going to move on to then the question of time, which um, you raised earlier that you were concerned about, you know, how to manage and balance um, the obligations between online and offline teaching. Mm. And I was wondering, how do you manage these time demands um, for you and uh, and Stephen? Um, how do you guys manage the, the the time requirements do you, are you called in to mediate often are you on 24 7 uh, are you just there for them te- techni- technically yes but um sure. currently for instance uh we are about to make some substitutions with our weeks so we have a, a new module which we're about to start filming in about two weeks on uh, there's a wonderful opera that was produced by a psychiatrist at falkenberg hospital called madness Songs of Hope and Despair. And Sean Barman, in this opera, compiles over 25 years, or I, I could be plus minus, i probably getting that wrong. I just pulled that number out of my head. Um, years of, of working at uh, UCT in a psychiatric hospital with of, of different patients' narratives and stories, and collated and brought together and disassembled and reassembled these narratives, all an- anonymous. Um, into a score, into a, a narrative account of, of people grappling with mental health issues. Uh, it's a story of isolation and loneliness, and it's sung by um, uh, the amazing opera singers from, from around the country. Um, it's a really powerful opera. And so we'll have Sean and the the... the the reproduction of that play will go on to our MOOC and then there'll be interviews with Sean. We'll also be bringing in Fanula Dowling who's written uh, amazing poetry about her mom's experience of mental health um, in a book of poetry that she wrote. And so in developing this new module on, on, on mental health, I mean the hours of filming and scripting, that's, that's one aspect of developing the MOOC. And then there's the, the ways of connecting it on the site with readings and literatures and questions and, and the online platform. Um, and then there's just the rolling out of, of the course and the time we spend online overseeing you know, how the students are engaging with the material, answering questions um, alongside our face-to-face teaching. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of work. Um, but I think to really develop uh, an aptitude for the work and to uh, further investigate the pedagogical imperative, it seems, as we move in, in, into these new worlds of online learning. Um, yeah, it's a great opportunity to sharpen, sharpen, sharpen an awareness around, around teaching. So while it adds a huge amount of time, which is not given credit to, just need to say that, it's not an accredited course. Students aren't registering and paying for these courses at the university. So when each of us as individual lecturers counts up the hours we've taught, the MOOC work doesn't appear. Right? Sure. So um, it is a, a, an act of passion and generosity or coercion, as the case may be. Sure. Um, uh, so, yeah, it is time-consuming. But I do think in the context of the flipped classrooms, I wouldn't do it as you said something about 
um, alternative or additional. Mm-hmm. I, I would myself only get involved in an online learning platform if it was in addition to an already existing course. Mm-hmm. Sure. I could never do this if it was simply an additional uh, add-on course or something that wasn't connected with a, with a physical face-to-face group of students. Sure. That I mean, that that's really an interesting perspective to consider because I think with uh, Fees Must Fall and uh, the huge kind of um, breaks in teaching schedule as we as a nation had to kind of reckon with the questions of access to higher education and a lot mm-hmm. of people were saying, you know, just go online, just do it online. <sighs> and you, you raise a really serious concern that I think needs a lot of attention that yeah. it's not only time intensive, the labor, but the quality of the experience needs to be enhanced with some level of face-to-face interaction and at least for the 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 facilitators to have yeah. that kind of connection so that's sure that's really interesting mm-hmm. um, so I mean you that definitely is one of the the challenges that might you know make people a bit weary of of coordinating the online mm-hmm. course along with the kind of um, institutional resources and backup um, required. So yeah. if your institution doesn't have a learning center um, that is supportive of this process, it could be you know, a massive undertaking to try and do as an individual academic. Mm. Are there any other challenges to, to this process that you've encountered that maybe I, I haven't highlighted yet? Mm. But... Oh, you've been amazing. Um, you've really, I think, touched on such a range of you know, critical issues, uh, namely access to MOOCs based on one's um, access to computers, internet, etc. Um, access to, um, you know, that, that, that it remains, you know, in an open access, uh, massively online learning era, um, that question of access, does it, does it reproduce? You know what does it reproduce? Does it mm. reproduce models of exclusion that we that we are currently uh, finally facing in South Africa, um, or does it in fact create an opening for for greater engagement? And um, that really is a critical question. Um, so I think you've touched yeah I think you've touched all the points. Um, the question of copyright is critical. Um, you know, how do we really create massively open online courses which are on par with um, the courses we offer at universities if we can't even teach um, the core readings that we'd like, that we set for our own students. So there's a question of you know, access to, to really the core material um, in which uh, we have seen on MOOCs uh, lecturers, you know, whether it's Mark Solms or, you know, whoever it might be, having to really grasp for uh, resources that are that are available, and that's critical. Um, and and yeah, I think you've touched on all the all the major big big questions and challenges. Sure. And for an intrepid academic listening to this show, and is <laughs> thinking, I too would like to get involved with a MOOC. Um, what advice would you give for somebody who's looking at adding? online learning to their teaching, um, what, what should they know before they plunge into, mm. into the div? Um, I think the, the first is, is time commitment. One really needs to not underestimate the amount of time it takes. Um, one needs to be ready 
to greet students from around the world with widely different uh, socio-political and economic sometimes uh, positionalities and, and just make, you know really know that when you put your own course online, you really are opening it up to uh, a world of, of varying kinds of expertises, and that, that in itself is quite exciting. Um, and I think being organized, um, I don't think I really knew what it meant to draft a course outline and stick to it until this MOOC. So if anyone out there in academia is thinking of, of you know, taking a great course, you know, whatever it might be, and, and putting it online, one needs to have a very clear sense of succession and progression of the themes, of the readings, the organizational structure, who's teaching, when, how, what kinds of questions get set, um, what are you going to assign. So the assignments and the, the quizzes that happen online in the online space are very different from the kinds of questions, or at least in my experience, they're quite different from the kinds of exercises that we have in our own face-to-face classrooms. So before getting involved in a MOOC, I think it's important to, to do a MOOC, to take a MOOC, to explore it, to navigate the different sites. Um, there are many different platforms. Uh, FutureLearn is just one. Um, and so that would really be my advice is to to take a MOOC, have a look and see what see what they offer, see what the limits are, and then bring one's creativity and imagination into it to see what what can be done more in in our context. Sure. And I think the most pressing question on my mind after all of this chat about online learning is, Susan, have you gone and learned how to play the guitar? (laughs) You know, I'm trying. I have gone through so many online guitar teachers, and I just can't find one that just really suits me. So I can play a couple tunes. Yep. 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 If I had my guitar with you, I would end with a little something something, but it's upstairs. <laughs> well, <laughs> Thanks for asking, though. Well, I hope that someone listening from a music department is going to take up the challenge and offer up a truly exciting and engaging online guitar learning oh, class. I just wish James Grace would do it, you know? He's brilliant. He's He's, the, he's there, he's in the country. Uh, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that would be awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nasifa. Lovely hearing from you. Hi, my name is Alna. I work for the Wits Radio Academy. I think that it's really great because it allows people, or students who may not normally be able to come in, whether that's because they're sick, maybe it's difficult because of family problems or they don't have the money for transport. Being able to do something from home or maybe from a Wi-Fi area close to their home can really alleviate a lot of the problems uh, just coming up around students. So that's great, but I do think that we have to think very carefully about how much of it we do because ultimately you do want it to be a conversation and you want to make sure that students are really understanding everything the lecturer is saying and that they have a chance to actually interact with with them. So if every single class is online, then there's no guarantee that those students are really understanding it. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. 
The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Jager Melkel created our jingles. Mm-hmm.